You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Let's continue our study of First Thessalonians. So uh, last week, I know you were all here and you all remember, but I'll review anyway. Uh, last week we were in chapter one. And uh, Paul was kind of answering the question, what is an authentic Christian? And you may remember the context. You can read about it in Acts chapter 17. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they go to Thessalonica. Man, people believe God's doing some things. But then very quickly, they start experiencing persecution from the city. They get run out of town. And so they've, Paul's had to leave this church, the young church behind, and they're experiencing the same persecutions from the city. And as often happens with suffering and persecution, often it brings confusion. And that's what's happening. They're beginning to ask themselves, wait, we had not been doing this very long. Did we miss something? I mean, is this, or is this the real thing? And Paul writes the answer, yes, this is real, authentic life change. God has changed something inside of you that has borne fruit externally. Now, in chapter 2, Paul changes to what we call ecclesiology, the study of the church. So he's not going to just be talking about you. He's going to be talking about us collectively. What is this collection of authentic Christians that come together called the church? This thing the, the Bible calls the body and the bride of Christ. This place they were in, Thessalonica, it's not too different than a lot of places around here. It's a very spiritual place. There are lots of religions. There's lots of uh, temples and things that would have been called churches. And uh, it was the kind of place where it was so easy to just throw up a church, call something a church. You could have called anything a church. I learned about a church this week that really surprised me. Not a lot surprised me anymore, but this one did. It's a church called St. John Coltrane African Orthodox Church. Now, if you hear that and you think, I didn't know there was another St. John Coltrane. There's not. It's talking about the jazz music, musician, John Coltrane, that this church has canonized, made a saint, and they like play all his music in their church. Um, no surprise, this is church is located in San Francisco. Place probably a lot like Thessalonica at the time. This is how their services go. Every Sunday morning, the minister of sound performs sound baptisms for two hours. For two hours, they play John Coltrane's music and mix it in with prayers and confessions. And that's followed by an hour-long sermon. And then the highlight of the service is it ends when the church choir recites Psalm 23 over John Coltrane's song called Acknowledgement. I know many of you thought this sounded like a great church until you just found out the services are three hours long. <laughs> And now you're like, oh, I'm good where I am, thanks. So is that a church? I mean, they call themselves a church. Can you canonize a jazz musician? I mean, that seems kind of weird, but if that's not a church, what is a church? The critics in Thessalonica, they were pointing to these, these Christians. Hey, you're not a church. This, this is all phony. And we know it's phony because your leader was phony. He was some charlatan. He just came and went, hopped in town, Got a little money maybe, and then he, he hopped town and he left. So Paul writes back and he says, no, don't listen to the critics. What happened here is genuine. It is God forming his authentic, real deal church. And he's going to, again, going to give us some proof. He's going to give us three proofs. This is an authentic church. Number one, genuine sacrifice. Number two, 
genuine relationships. And number three, genuine truth. This is what he finds at this church in Thessalonica. Genuine sacrifice, genuine relationships built on genuine truth. So let's turn 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's start in verse 1. We'll read a few verses and talk about them and then keep going. He writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our, our appeal does not spring from error or impunity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So the first thing Paul points out for this genuine church is his genuine sacrifice. Paul sacrificed a couple of things. The first thing he sacrificed is his comfort. Now, the city leaders, they're telling these Christians, you know, that Paul, he's just in it for himself. He's there to, to profit. And that would have been normal at the time. It would have been very normal in that city for people to hop in town, some spiritual guide, some guru, say, hey, come to my conference, come to my seminar, collect a little money, and then jump town, and he's gone. But Paul says, you, you can know that I was not in it for personal gain, because when I came to you, I had three traveling companions. Three things traveled with me. It was suffering, it was shameful treatment, and it was conflict. That's what I brought with me. I encourage you this. We go read Acts chapter 16 and 18 and ask yourself, is there any way Paul is in this for his own comfort? It started in Philippi where they were jailed, had to be busted out by an earthquake and an angel. Then they come to Thessalonica, and the Jews in the synagogue stir up a riot. So they go to Berea, and those same Jews follow him to Berea and cause another riot and kick them out of there. You know you some people, you've made some people mad when the synagogue turns into a traveling roadshow <laughs> and follows you around. You see the irony in these accusations. I mean, Paul's they're saying Paul's in it for his own profit, but in each city, the reality is there's no comfort for Paul. Paul is reminding them, I couldn't even find a safe place to sleep in the past three cities that I've been to. And yet, yet he says, I came and I spoke the truth with boldness. Now, we can't misunderstand boldness. Boldness is not loud, uh, obnoxious. Uh, unwelcomed, okay, this isn't your uncle at Thanksgiving dinner talking about how it was back in his day and kids don't get it. There's not any of that. Boldness, that word boldness, it means to speak the truth freely, to proclaim the truth as if there was no cost. It's like when I go to the grocery store and they're handing out free samples. You know, I go to Sam's. I love it. Don't you love it? You walk in and you start seeing all those ladies with the little movable counters and they got a crock pot right there. I'm so free with that. I'm like, I'm in. Whatever you got, I'll take some. It's free. No problem. Yes. Try some of that. Try some of that. No problem. I have a different mentality when I go to the checkout counter. Then if I'm going to take something, I want to check that price tag. I want to know how much it's going to cost because I might not be willing to pay it. Paul's saying, I spoke the truth without checking the price tag. As if there were no cost 
as if it were free. Now, was there a cost? Absolutely. He is suffering. He is having shameful treatment. He is having conflict. It wasn't that there was no cost. It was just that for Paul, he didn't check the price tag. It didn't factor into the equation of how he spoke the truth. You know, I think as I look around, I think boldness is one of those things missing. It's a missing, missing ingredient in the lives of many Christians. And I know for me many times, you know what I like? I like to be liked. Isn't it great being liked? I mean, there's nothing better. Yes. So you know what? When I encounter conflict like Paul, man, I start checking that price tag a little bit. Man, I'm not, I'm not sure this is worth the price to me. So I know, at least in my life, what, what tends to prevent my boldness is the fear of personal hardship, this fear of sacrificing some of my own comfort. But Paul says, this is what genuine ministry is. This is what the church does. You know that we are genuine by our genuine sacrifice of our own comfort. And just in case you think it's bad enough to have to sacrifice you know, some of your comfort, then he points out, you know what else I sacrificed? I sacrificed my own rights. He points out in verse 6 and in verse 9 that he chose, he's speaking financially, he chose not to be a financial burden to this church, not to ask anything of them financially. And he's pointing this out because, again, all the critics are saying, well, he's just trying to profit off of you. There's some things we know about Paul. So we know Paul was a tent maker, probably closer to what we'd call a leather worker. He probably didn't only make tents. And it's interesting. So at times... He supports himself with his trade when he comes to some of these cities. But other times, he accepts offerings so he can focus on the work of the ministry. So in Ephesus, he supports himself by his trade. But then we know he accepted gladly the gift of the Philippians so that he could focus on ministry. Well, why, why did he do things one way sometimes and the other way the other times? Over and over we see in the life of Paul, the determining factor was never what was good for himself. Always, every time, the determining factor was what was good for the other people. It wasn't what he was entitled to. It was what was most beneficial for the church at that time. Which I think raises an important question for all of us. What do you do with your rights? What do you do with them? You know, in, in our world, our knee-jerk reaction is you demand your rights. You stand up for your rights. But you know what the church is? The church is a group of believers who willingly lay down their rights, sacrifice their rights for the good of other people. I read a quote, men who want to fleece the flock always reveal themselves by their selfishness. Men who want to feed their flock show themselves by their sacrifice. And part of our sacrifice, men and women, is sometimes setting aside what we're entitled to for the good of someone else. And this is Paul's proof. This is proof against all the haters. We haven't been selfish. No, no, no. We have been sacrificial. And y'all, we have to realize, you have to realize, the world around you will demand the same proof based on your claims. We will never lead our kids, our neighbors, our friends to Christ if they don't first see how committed we are to that gospel that we're trying to preach to them. It's not when they are amazed at how conflict-free our life is or, how, or when they get jealous of the pictures that we post online. No, no, it's when they see how much you're willing to sacrifice. That's the proof. And by the way, 
did you know you have the same assurance from Jesus Christ? Paul will go on to write in Romans 8. He'll say, this is how you can know. This is how you can know that Jesus loves you, that he is never not working for your good, that he is not holding any good thing back from you. You can know this because of his sacrifice, because he laid down his life for you. If he laid down his life for you, he's done the biggest thing. You, know, you can know he loves you. His willingness to sacrifice is the physical evidence of his love. Now, if sacrifice is the proof for Jesus, doesn't it make sense that his followers would offer the same proof? I think it does. So an authentic church has genuine sacrifice. Next, Paul says, an authentic church has genuine relationships. Genuine relationships. Let's read verse 7. He says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul reminds them of the genuine relationships that they had formed in doing this ministry. I read commentator John Stott said that this passage, this one we just read, reveals more about the heart, soul, and emotions of Paul than perhaps any of his other writings. And I think he's true. I think he's right. Paul is sharing his heart here with these people, and he's gushing. He says he is affectionately desirous of them. They are dear to him. He, he describes himself as gentle like a nursing mother and like a father. Simply put, Paul loved these people. That word in verse 7 where he describes himself as gentle that word, it's the word for infant. Now, has anyone ever been roughed up by an infant? Has anybody ever been intimidated by a baby? And so think about that. Think about Paul. He's been stoned. He's been on shipwrecks. This is a tough dude, okay? And he's important. He's kind of famous in the Christian world by that point. But he says with them, he was as unthreatening as an infant. You know, I think this is so important today. You know, so somehow many times we've, we've, we're convinced we can shout people into faith or we can wag our finger at people, but it's not true. Doesn't the Bible say that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance? That man's anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires? He says he was like a mother, like a mother nursing their young. Think, what is a nurturing mother like? That's, that's the... Uh, analogy he's doing. He was nurturing. They're generous with their time. They're generous with their attention. They're patient. There's a joy in taking care of their child. And that's what the church is supposed to be. The church has to be a place not where performance is demanded, but where growth is nurtured. It's okay to be messy. It's okay to try and fail. It's okay to be different. I mean, think about the life of Jesus. How many times did the disciples almost comically mess up and drop the ball and seem totally unaware? And yet he would just gently, patiently nurture them into maturity and walk with them. Paul's the same way. 
And he says in verse 8, y'all, verse 8 is a key verse for ministry. He says, this is how the church was formed. This is how ministry happened. I just shared two things. That's all I did. I shared two things. I shared the gospel and I shared my life. That's what we did. Which is fascinating to me, especially when you think about how Paul used to be. When he was not Paul, he was Saul, the Pharisee. This is the exact opposite approach of the Pharisees. See, Saul, the Pharisee, he, he would have been obsessed with keeping, keeping himself separate and clean. All these other crazy heathens out there, they would have been a threat to his own personal holiness. But Paul, after his conversion, he's saying in the most vulnerable, intimate way, I shared my very life with these crazy, unclean, bacon-eating Gentiles. He's saying they became precious to me. They became my friends. We have to remember in the church that, that ministry is always wrapped in the package of relationships. It's genuine relationships with people. The ones that Paul used to avoid, maybe the ones that sometimes we're tempted to avoid. The church always shares both the gospel and our lives. There's a common question I get, and it's a fair question. Is a pastor, people new, come in, or they just find out I'm a pastor, they want to know what the church does, and so they will what programs do you have? Or what, what do you have for me? Or what do you have for my spouse? Or, or what do you have for your kids? And really, the church only has one thing. Believers in relationships with people. That's what we do. That's ministry. We offer our lives to people and then we share the truth with them. So the church doesn't preach at people. We walk with people. Now, I hear a little, a little buzz, a little, some little words quieter than it usually is from this back window back here. I want everyone to turn around. Everyone turn around and look up top here at this black window. You see that? Many of you know what's, what is on the other side of that window. That is our preschool room. And if you, especially if you sit on this side of the room, you are well aware of what's going on. You could probably recite the lesson because you've heard it all during the church service. And they'll get loud, they'll get rambunctious, and they'll start stomping around. So much so that even some of you over here can hear it, Right? In fact, let's all, I think I heard them earlier. Can y'all hear them? Let's all be a little quiet. Paul said, there they are. You hear them? That was Tucker, yeah. <laughs> Brian's like, I know who that, exactly who that was. <laughs> you want to know why I have never and will never ask them to go be quiet? Because that's not a disturbance. That's ministry. That is people sharing their lives along with the gospel. And so I want us to hear them. Let them shout. Anytime, here's what I want you to do. Anytime you hear them, you know what I want you to do? I want you to praise God that there are people sharing their lives and the truth with the youngest among us. They're making an impact we will not know this side of heaven. And the second thing I want you to do is let it serve as a reminder to you to ask yourself, who am I sharing my life with? What are my relationships? What relationships am I using for the gospel? The simple fact is most people will trust a Christian before they will trust Christ. In fact, I read a stat today, 75 to 90% of people in our nation convert through friendships. So not some Yahoo on stage with a microphone, not at some rally or some crusade, and certainly not watching a guy on TV. There's someone who shared their life with them. So you know what you, 
You want to impact your family? You want to impact your neighborhood? You want to impact your nation? It happens through genuine relationships. An authentic church has genuine sacrifice, genuine relationships. Finally, genuine truth. The church is built on genuine truth. Verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God and Jesus Christ that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to lift up the me- full, fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Genuine truth is what the whole thing is built on. And we got to understand that nothing that we've talked about so far matters at all. Nothing that we've talked about so far can transform the human heart if it's not built on a foundation of truth. And so he says in verse 13, he says, you received something. You received something that transformed you. But it wasn't my words. It wasn't the words of Timothy or Silas. It wasn't the words of any man. It was the words of who? Words of God. It was the word of God that changed you. And so as important as sacrifice and relationships are, those things cannot transform a human heart. God's word can transform the human heart. He mentions the gospel four times in this chapter. That's more than any other chapter in the book. Twice in verse 13, he he points out that this word has divine origin. It is from God. It is not from us. And so as a church, we have to understand, we are not the chef, we are the waiter. God does not want us to prepare the food and fix it out right and do it. He just wants us to deliver it exactly how he prepared it. And don't mess it up. That's all we have to do. And we understand that today the Bible is God's word for us today, isn't it? And in fact, when you think about it, we have way more. We have an abundance of riches. We have way more of the words of God than probably this church in Thessalonica did. They. They could have never dreamed how much of God's word we have. And so when we gather here, this is why we're not just gathering people together around fun or around a personality or around our own wisdom. No, no, no. We are gathering people around the word of God because that is what will transform lives. And so when we gather, that's what we do. Whether it's with our students and preschool or up here, we gather people around God's word because that is, That is what is living and active, isn't it? That is what is sharper than any double-edged sword. That is the only thing that God has promised will not return void. So Paul says, in verse 13, he says, "This, this word of God, this word of divine origin, it's at work in you. You have to know this. Your Bible, it's not just empty, dead words on a page. It works in you. You know, the past few years, I've really grown to appreciate the writings of a, a lady named Rosario Butterfield. She's got an amazing convergent story. She, she describes herself as a leftist lesbian professor. But over a period of a couple of years, through relationships, she was converted. She was transformed. 
And I want you to listen to how she describes the power of God's word in her life. She writes this. I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. Say that again. The Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything I loved. But the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. The Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. That's the power of God's word. This is what Paul meant when he writes that the Thessalonians accepted God's word. That word accepted, it means welcomed. It's like putting out a welcome mat in your heart for God's word to come in and enter and make itself at home. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you're a little more gracious than me. But just because you're in my home doesn't mean you're welcomed. Part of it matters who you are. So if you're a salesman, definitely. But just because you're in my home doesn't mean you're welcome. Part of that has to do with time, what time of night it is. Just because you are welcome at 6 p.m. does not mean you are still welcome at 10. In fact, at 10, you are welcome to leave. (laughs) Truth is the same way. Just because you hear the truth, just because you're around God's word, doesn't mean you've welcomed it into your heart. And here's the reality. Here's what the Bible says. In truth, on our own, none of us will welcome God's word. We will all reject it. But God's word is powerful. It was powerful in the lives of these Thessalonians. It it transformed their hearts so that they welcomed it in. They said, have a seat, kick off your shoes, have a drink, stay as long as you like. That's what their hearts did with God's word. But that's not all. It transformed them so much that it changed them into imitators. And notice, notice who he said, Paul says they imitated. A lot of people, actually. So Paul says, you imitated me and Silas and Timothy. You imitated us. He also says, you imitated all the churches in Judea who are experiencing the same thing. And then also he says in verse 15, you imitated Christ himself. And notice exactly what they were imitating. Suffering. That was their imitation. They were imitating suffering. And Paul, he keeps going back to this over and over and over. Genuine sacrifice is the sign of the authentic church. See, the the primary purpose of chapter 2 for Paul, it's not just for him to defend himself, okay? He's not, it's not that he's like codependent or obsessed with everyone's opinion of him. No, no, no. Paul's purpose is to replicate what he has done, for them to imitate him, because it didn't start with him. Because it's also true of every Christian in Judea, Judea, and it was also true of Jesus Christ himself. Paul's point here is that there has always been and there will always be resistance to to the truth from the human heart. Man naturally loves self and loves sin, and the gospel is exclusive in its worship of Jesus Christ. The gospel is clear that the throne, God's throne, it's a one-seater. It's not a love seat. You can't both fit there. There's only room for him. There's only room for one. And so that's what Paul writes. He writes elsewhere that, man, sometimes the gospel, for some it's the sin of life, those who welcome it, but for others it's the stench of death. 
and they revolt. They, they, they react against it. When that happens, when that happens, Christians' role is to suffer and to sacrifice, just as Jesus did. Didn't Jesus warn his disciples, hey guys, if the world hates me, guess who else they're going to hate? You, everyone who follows me. Didn't Jesus say, hey, if you want to follow me, great. I'm so glad you want to follow me. That is great news. Here's a cross. I've got one for you too. Pick it up and follow me. He told his disciples, right, right, the night before he went to the cross, he washed their feet and he said, I'm doing this so that you know that, that what I'm going to do tomorrow, it's an example that I want you to follow. I'm going to sacrifice and lay down my life for others and I want you to do the same thing. You see, men and women, Jesus is not just a gift to receive. He is an example to imitate. And that's what Paul is telling them. And he wants them to know you will never be willing to imitate the sufferings of Jesus if you don't know what the genuine truth is, if you don't know that he is the truth, if you don't know that every word of the Bible is true, is from God, and every word is about Jesus Christ. See, all, all of our sacrifice, all of our genuine relationships and love, it only grows from the fact that we have the genuine truth of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that will produce these things in our lives. And so this is the authentic church in Thessalonica. This is what an authentic church looks like today. Genuine sacrifice in genuine relationships built on top of the genuine truth of Jesus Christ. You know what's great about this week? Is I see a lot of this place in this chapter. I got to tell you, my, my love for this place and for these people has grown this week. But also know, listen, we're not perfect and we're not all done yet. And so I ask, okay, how can we apply this to our lives today? How can we move in this direction? Well, I can only look at my life. And as I looked at my life, really three things came up I want to share with you. First one is this. Stop depending on people or experiences to transform you. Stop depending on people or experiences to transform you. Simply put, read your Bible. We have to be in God's Word. We have to be surrounded by God's Word. We have to welcome God's Word into our life. It is God's Word that transforms us. You know, one of the biggest things that holds back the church in our culture today is the huge, enormous divide that exists between what we say about the importance of the Bible and how much we actually read the Bible for ourselves. I read an article this week. The American Bible Society, every year, they do an annual report. It's called the State of the Bible Report. Now, one of the other pastors pointed out, the state of the Bible is perfect. It's fine. It should be called the State of the People Report. The Bible's great. It's a matter of what the people are doing with it. It was amazing reading it because the people, they've been doing this report for 15 years, and you could tell they were shocked at what they found this year. Because in the year 2022, roughly 26 million people in America stopped reading their Bible, even just three or four times a year. 26 million said, I can't even muster three or four times a year. And when it comes to daily, regular Bible reading, only 10% of Americans read their Bible daily. Now, that, 
Those stats tell us there's a lot of people coming to church genuinely wanting to experience God, wanting to grow, wanting to learn, wanting to to understand who He is, wanting to be transformed, but they're not reading God's Word. So we have to understand, if we we come to church and we think, you know, we're going to come occasionally, and if we can have some good experiences, hang out with some friends, you know, apart from God's Word, that we're going to be transformed, that's not how it's going to happen. I remember... One of the best professors I had in seminary, a guy named Donald Whitney. Don Whitney. If you ever find a book by Don Whitney, read it. You'll be blessed by it. But I remember one class, he just stopped and goes, you know what? I've been doing this a long time. I've been a pastor. I've been a seminary professor. I've been a Christian a long time. And I've never met a single person who is spiritually alive and growing in Christ who is not regularly in God's Word. I just never met him. Man, that hit me. I mean, it's as simple as you can put it. It's true. We have to be in God's word for him to work in us. Second is this. We are all in full-time ministry. We are all in full-time ministry. Paul in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians, he's talking to all the Christians. He's talking to everybody. If you bear the name of Christ, you're called to genuine sacrifice, genuine relationships, and genuine truth. Paul is trying to help us understand the church isn't just a place we go to. It is who we are. It is who we are in here, and it is who we are out there. It's a full-time gig. You know, and this is one of the reasons we are always asking people around here to participate and to serve. Now, sometimes we do that because someone else has a need. And yeah, we need some help meeting that need. Sometimes we ask that because it's what you need. It's what you need to grow in Christ, to be an imitator of him. You don't need to watch other people do more stuff. You need to become imitators. You need to be the church, not just go to church. Finally, this. And y'all, this was so convicting for me. I didn't want to say this because I didn't want to say it to myself, but it's true. If you're too busy for relationships, you're too busy. If you're too busy for relationships, you are too busy. You know, Satan's very first attack, the very first sin, was all about how he could sever relationships to stop the truth. It really didn't have a lot to do with trees and fruit. It was really, he knew. He knew if I can sever their relationship with God, get them to say, I don't really know I can trust him. I think he's holding out on me. If I can sever their relationship with one another, get them pointing the finger, blaming each other, I know I've got them. I can sever relationships. I can stop the truth. And we have to understand he is still doing the same thing today. He is still doing whatever he can to sever relationships so that he can stop the truth. But he doesn't use fruit anymore. I'm convinced one of his most successful poise is to use our schedules and our busyness. Haven't we all, we've all said it a million times. I, there's no telling how many times I said it this week. I'm too busy, Right? Men and women, if we are going to be the authentic church God has called us to be, hear me, we cannot participate in the cultural norms of activity. We have to take ownership of our priorities. We have to make room for relationships. That's what we have to do. What if, what if all of us in this place, what if instead of keeping up with the Joneses, we decided to keep up with Jesus? What if instead of listening to the world say, here's all the things you got to do, we just listen to Jesus say, here's the one thing. Here's the only thing you need to do. Follow me. Imitate me. Be my church. Now, that will take sacrifice, won't it? 
You better believe it. But I think that's Paul's point all along in this chapter. This is how it all connects. It takes genuine sacrifice to make genuine relationships, to open the door for genuine truth in this world. Genuine sacrifice, genuine relationships, genuine truth. That's who Jesus wants us to be. That's who I want us to be. I hope you do too. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.